0: In 1969, a 22-year-old aspiring journalist, Roy Greenslade, got his first job on Fleet Street, working for Rupert Murdoch's newest title, The Sun.
1: Rupert was an unknown quantity when he arrived in Britain. All of us were uncertain uh, whether he really was up to the job. This man who seemed to have no background that we'd heard of, a small paper in Australia that
0: we were uncertain about, Roy says Rupert's big break in the UK really only happened because The Sun was a failing paper. It was probably only
1: selling about 800,000, which in modern times might seem like a lot, but at the time was a pretty small circulation, couldn't attract much advertising because it hadn't got a large enough audience, and many people working for it thought that it wouldn't last.
0: The Sun was tired. It was stuck in the 50s and getting beaten by the mirror every single day but owning it gave rupert a real foothold right at the heart of the british newspaper industry fleet street
1: so rupert bought the news of the world months before which was a broadsheet newspaper in a building just off fleet street which had already by the time of of 1969 uh, was really uh, way beyond its its reasonable sell-by date. It was old, its machines were very dirty, the place was pretty filthy and unkempt.
0: Rupert wanted to print the Daily Sun and the Weekly News of the World on the same presses so he could run them 24-7. But the printers told him the machines couldn't print both a broadsheet and a tabloid at the same time. As it turned out, they were wrong.
1: Rupert went down and found the bars which could be inserted into the printing machines in order to do it. It, it. it showed the kind of metal of the man. Here was a man who really knew the job.
0: No one had ever seen a media proprietor roll up his sleeves and jump on the top of a grimy old printing press before. But Rupert delighted in breaking the rules and he set about livening up the new masthead. How did Rupert transform the sun?
1: I think the important thing for Rupert was his choice of editor. Together, they understood uh, that the British working class were on the crest of a change. What was coming to the fore was a new kind of individualism, helped by growing affluence. And whether they did it by luck or judgment, it's hard to know. But they appealed to that point of view within the working class
0: The other thing Rupert realised was that sex sells. A year after he took over the sun, Rupert put out an edition that rocked the nation. All of a sudden, there was a topless model on page three. Topless women every day. What did you think about that? Well, like everyone else at the time, I thought
1: this was rather fun. We didn't see any harm in it. It seemed to us that we were doing something rather revolutionary. We were saying two fingers to our parents' generation. We were prepared to do as we liked. Sex was suddenly liberated in every possible way and the women that posed were doing so uh, happily and it seemed to us that we were part of a new revolutionary era.
0: So you thought you were taking on Fleet Street We saw ourselves as the new
1: force in Fleet Street, that we were tearing up the old ways and inventing a new form of journalism, a new way. We were the enfant terrible of Fleet Street and proud to be so. I'm
0: Paddy Manning. I've been tracing the story of Rupert Murdoch. I want to know who he is and what drives him. Rupert arrived in London ready to shake things up. In this episode, I'll examine how secret meetings with one of the most controversial prime ministers of the last century, Margaret Thatcher, helped Rupert realise his ambitions. This is the story of the best bit of business that Rupert ever did, and arguably the most cruel. How he changed the news industry overnight. How he created a profit engine that catapulted him into the ranks of the world's richest men, and how political favours and even police brutality allowed him to get there. From Schwartz Media and 7am, this is Rupert, the Last Mogul. Episode 3 My Dear Prime Minister. Rupert's transformation of The Sun and the news of the world earned him a nickname in the UK that he would never live down. The Dirty Digger. Rupert's mother, Elizabeth, and his wife, Anna, were appalled at the topless girls in The Sun. But the goal was to sell copies and get Rupert noticed, and it absolutely worked. It took a decade, but in the 1970s, The Sun overtook The Daily Mirror as the leading tabloid in Britain. Rupert was king of Fleet Street but he still craved respectability.
2: I mean, if one looks at the newspapers that you own here, one can scarcely say that, uh, for the majority of the memory, that that you have raised the standards of British journalism. Oh, I absolutely defy that. I think
0: that's very wrong. uh, Here was Rupert talking to eminent broadcaster Terry Wogan.
2: You could certainly say it about the son of the news of the world, couldn't you? Do you you read them
0: often? I think every day, and I think we've improved them greatly. Are you proud of them? Yes, indeed. Particularly the sun. Are you
2: really? On <laughs> the front page of the sun?
0: Absolutely. When you see the Most sun- newspapers were owned by aristocrats, and Rupert was an outsider. He wanted to take on the establishment, and in the late 1970s he found an ally, the populist, iron-fisted conservative leader Margaret Thatcher. The original,
2: the, the, his death... Now, she's just coming into Downing Street now. Here comes
0: the prime ministerial rover, bearing now Mrs Thatcher as Prime Minister. A huge crowd. C- can you take us back to the late 1970s and the rise of Margaret Thatcher? Can you describe her for us? Back in the
1: 70s, the Labour government was in a lot of trouble at the time and the Tory party had uh, what they regarded as a weak leader
0: and Margaret Thatcher emerged
1: as the front runner.
0: When Thatcher took office, Roy says she quickly became a unique political figure.
1: In the sense that, apart from being a woman, which was unusual in political terms, she was strong, she was determined, and she had a vision that the market should be as free as possible, should be as unregulated as possible, and that that was the best way forward for Britain.
0: But after the election, she began to slide with the public, She was the most unpopular Prime Minister ever, according to the polls, except in the pages of The Sun. What do you think Thatcher saw in Rupert?
1: I think that they they saw in each other a mirror image and that drew them together. That they both shared the view that regulated economies didn't work so well, that it was better to endorse the free market. I think that was deep in Rupert's DNA and very definitely deep in Margaret Thatcher's DNA. It was certainly clear that when we come to the early 80s that they were obliging each other in many respects.
0: The full extent of Rupert and Mrs Thatcher's relationship remained secret for decades... The details were held in Thatcher's official archive, millions of documents, diary notes and records that weren't open to the public until the 2000s. I dug into this archive and found documents proving that Rupert and Mrs. Thatcher were much closer than they ever admitted. I found a note from 1981, written by Thatcher's private secretary. It was described as a salient record of a lunch that she'd had with Rupert at Chequers, her country residence and she wanted to keep it secret. According to this memo, Rupert initiated the meeting for one reason only, to talk about his bid for the Times of London. Now this is one of the oldest, most prestigious newspapers in the world. If he could buy the Times, a broadsheet, he could finally get the respectability he was after and the nearest thing to a monopoly with 40% of the British newspaper industry. Rupert's bid made people nervous. The BBC did a documentary on whether it should be allowed. Uh, Should Fleet Street, should Britain be afraid of Rupert Murdoch?
3: Uh, I think uh, a certain amount of fear would be only prudent in the circumstances, given that concentration of power in the hands of a man with that record, yes.
0: Normally, the Monopolies Commission would scrutinise an acquisition like this to make sure that nobody emerged with too much power over the press. But in that memo I found in the archive, Rupert made his case to Thatcher as to why he should be allowed to take over the paper. He promised not to interfere with the Times' editorial independence and said he would invest in modernising it. There's nothing in the memo to say Thatcher colluded with Rupert. She didn't make any promises. She wished him well. But within weeks of the meeting, the Monopolies Commission decided not to investigate Rupert's bid for the Times. Within months, he'd bought the paper. The Prime Minister spent her whole life denying she'd made a secret deal with Rupert. But there's no doubt Rupert got exactly what he wanted.
1: I think that was the first real, genuine example in which you could say that Margaret Thatcher helped
0: Rupert Murdoch's business. You were, by 1981, back at the sun, as I understand. How did you feel to hear that your boss was secretly kind of in cahoots with the Prime Minister? You know, rationally, it wasn't a big surprise. Margaret Thatcher's press secretary
1: and one or two of her other advisors were regular visitors to the offices. It was assumed, widely, that Rupert Murdoch and Margaret Thatcher were not put. Um, too sexy a gloss on this, were in bed together.
0: Yes, not literally.
1: Uh, Not literally, but certainly they indulged, I think, in pillow talk.
0: There's evidence of that in the archive as well. I found a note handwritten by Rupert thanking Margaret Thatcher for that same lunch. He called her, My dear Prime Minister. Rupert got regulatory favour out of Thatcher. He got the times. But there had to be a quid pro quo. And that means Thatcher was getting something out of it too. It had taken another year for Rupert to pay back the Prime Minister's kindness. Argentina has seized the British Falkland Islands, whose ownership she's been disputing with Britain for two centuries. It was the news
1: that stunned the world. After weeks of rising tension, Argentina's military dictatorship ordered the invasion of the Falklands.
0: The Falklands are one of the most ridiculous outposts of the old British Empire. So small and so far from Britain that they are virtually indefensible. But 2,000 Britons lived there, and when Argentina invaded, Thatcher unleashed the full force of Britain's military might. Roy Greenslade was off on a beach holiday. When he got back to work, he found the newsroom of The Sun had turned into a war room. It was as if we were another part of the government on the command
1: vehicles for the Falklands that we were gung-ho for the war internally. The news editor was wearing a Siemens, and uh, there was a great board up with a, a map showing the ships advancing towards the South Atlantic. Nowhere was that clearer than when you get to the sinking of the Belgrano.
0: Roy Greenslade was there on the floor when the news broke that a British submarine had sunk an Argentinian cruiser called the Belgrano, sailing just outside the Falkland Islands exclusion zone.
1: When news came through on the tape that Belgrano had been sunk, one of the executives leapt in the air and said, gotcha.
0: Kelvin McKenzie, the Sun's editor, jumped on it he planned to splash the front page of The Sun with the one-word headline, Gotcha! As more reports started coming through about the extent of the casualties, he had second thoughts.
1: We didn't know the nature of the casualties, but within, say, an hour, an hour and a half, we did know. And Kelvin decided that we should perhaps
0: change the front page. Kelvin went up to Rupert's office, suggesting maybe they should soften the headline.
1: And Rupert said, no, leave it leave the gotcha. So it was Rupert's decision to go with that.
0: One word, gotcha. One of the most famous front pages in the history of the Sun. It was a symbol of the paper's bloodthirsty coverage of the whole conflict. What did the Sun's support for the war do for Margaret Thatcher? Did, did the Falklands War lift her popularity? Margaret
1: Thatcher was made by the Falklands War. That was the high point for her. For the British public, here was a woman of indomitable spirit. Churchillian spirit uh, was seen to be just what the British needed, that they actually appreciated her authoritarian leadership. And this was reinforced day after day in the sun. But not The Sun alone, The Daily Express and The Daily Mail as well. It was a collective, but The Sun was obviously the foremost newspaper in terms of sales. And and so therefore what The Sun said really mattered in the wider electoral base. And a lot of the success at the following election was down to the way that she was portrayed in The Sun.
0: Thatcher declared she'd made Great Britain great again. And she'd done it with Rupert's help. Together, they'd taken on a foreign enemy and won. Now, Thatcher decided to launch an attack on an enemy within. The trade union movement.
2: One of the problems in this country is that we have a few, a comparatively few people, they could be measured in thousands, who wish to destroy the kind of society which you and I value, destroy the free society.
0: You were talking please, about please, striking ambulance most, workers, please, you were talking about ancillary most, workers please, hospitals. this
2: is the most important point you have raised. There are people in this country who are the great destroyers. They wish to destroy the kind of free society we have. They wouldn't have the freedom in the kind of society they wish to impose on us. Many of those people are in the unions.
0: Margaret Thatcher came to power after what was known as the winter of discontent, when there were strikes across Britain and uncollected garbage piling up in the streets. When she took power, she passed a raft of anti-union laws. She banned so-called sympathy strikes across industries. She outlawed picketing, and she made unions liable for the damages they caused when they went on strike. First, she targeted the coal miners. The
1: miners of County Durham are still relying on old-style muscle in their confrontation with the Tory government.
3: 56,000 men in the Yorkshire Mining District, the biggest most elite group of Britain's miners have been called out on strike next Monday. The immediate cause of the strike is the closing of one pit for economic reasons. The board say that it's losing money. The
2: people who pay for coal are entitled to have reasonable price coal when it can be obtained. That does mean that the older uneconomic pits have to be closed down.
0: The unions lost More than 11,000 strikers were arrested and the mines stayed shut. Thatcher had taken out the strongest union in the country. The print unions on Fleet Street were widely considered the second most powerful and they were watching closely. After the break, Rupert and Thatcher set their sights on Fleet Street.
2: As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with POST. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters.
3: As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au newsletters.
0: Anne Field was a clerical worker on Fleet Street in the 1970s and 80s. She loved the place and ended up working for one of the print unions.
3: Murdoch treated the workers at The Sun and News the World and at Times and Sunday Times in much the same way that all the other employers did. They had to deal with the unions. And because we had very strong organisation and closed shops, we were able to exert our strength. Most of us had the best conditions or among the best conditions amongst the British workforce because of it.
0: Anne is still passionate about her time at Fleet Street 30 years later. For her, they were the golden years. Did you love it?
3: Oh, it was the best time of my life, work-wise. It was very exciting. You felt that you knew what was going on everywhere. And I don't just mean in terms of uh, the community of Fleet Street, but politics, industry, what was going on in the world, because all of us read our newspapers.
0: But Rupert Murdoch increasingly was getting frustrated by the power of the unions. They were costing him a fortune. Well, for instance, the, uh, the Sunday Times, we were paying 560 people in the press room there every night, over £150 pounds every, for a Saturday night. You could never find more than 60 of them at work at any one time. Um, they quite openly uh, were only working every second night, and the nights they were working, they were working half nights, that sort of thing. Uh, right here, when we were trying to get them to work here, they were insisting on eight people for one position. Eight,
2: eight, eight. people for one position?
0: Yes, that's right. By the mid-1980s, Rupert had newspapers on three continents, and it was clear to him that the UK printing industry was behind the times. Elsewhere, computers were printing papers cheaper, faster and with less people. Rupert saw an opportunity to cut down the workforce and move his operations from dirty old Fleet Street into a brand new warehouse complex in a suburb called Wapping
3: no one really wanted to leave fleet street at all levels because it was great but most people including our members in the trade unions knew that it was inevitable because of the crowding and technology etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: was it clear that computerization was coming
3: Yes, of course it was, and uh, our uh, concern as trade unionists was that jobs should be made more secure as a consequence of computerisation, not less secure. So we expected an agreement. The workers expected an agreement.
0: Rupert told them the new whopping plant was nothing to worry about. He told them he was building it to produce a totally new masthead called the London Post using computer terminals. But Rupert never intended to publish that paper at all. The whole thing was a ruse. Rupert had a secret deal to hire computer-trained workers, many from the US and Australia. He said they were there as part of a training exercise. but The secret was they were actually a shadow workforce. The printers didn't know it, but Rupert was planning to move all of his newspapers to Wapping. The Sun, The News of the World, The Times and The Sunday Times.
1: A group of the senior executives at The Sun, of whom I was one, were very conscious of what was going on. I I lost a couple of staff to go off to train on the new technology. I knew it was happening. Roy Greenslade had an inside view. I couldn't believe that he could pull it off, to be honest. I thought, like many members of the unions, I, I just imagined it would be impossible. We'd no idea that we could really produce newspapers under those circumstances without them. And we just thought that this would be a tactic in which he would lock out some of the unions and eventually we'd have to re-engage them.
0: Roy was dead wrong.
1: He got all his ducks in a row. The print works ready, the journalists were ready, circulation had been organised so that they wouldn't have to use the trains because of The problems they would have with unions there, they'd created a firm to truck the copies across Britain.
0: The newsroom was ready, but there was one last thing Rupert had to do. Visit Margaret Thatcher. I found a note of it in the archive, another thank you note, this time from Thatcher to Rupert. It was sent just before Rupert declared war at Wapping. She wrote, I'm delighted that you enjoyed the lunch on Sunday and I'm so pleased you were able to come to Chequers. The red roses look beautiful. Thank you very much for this kind thought. And then, with her own hand, she signed off. Warm regards. Yours sincerely, Margaret Thatcher. Four days later, Rupert launched his all-out assault on the print unions. He did what we call a moonlight flit.
1: He literally transferred everything from Fleet Street uh, to Wapping, and produced the newspapers as if there'd been no break between the ones that were before and the ones that would follow after.
0: As soon as they found out about Rupert's plan, the unions voted to go on strike.
3: Within 20 minutes of the strike being declared and members walking out, The company had piles and piles of dismissal letters waiting for people to give to them as they left the building.
0: That day was the 24th of January 1986 and the start of one of the biggest fights of Rupert's life, an ordeal that would last 13 months. He wanted them all out and that was all there was to it.
2: They call it Fortress Whopping, Rupert Murdoch's printing factory that sparked his war with British printing unions. It's now the front line for an industrial battle to the death. Razor wire, police, and armed guards.
0: Rupert's fight against the print unions would go down in history as the Whopping dispute. Five and a half thousand sacked union workers, along with a handful of journalists who joined the strike, camped outside Rupert's Whopping factory. Their aim? To do anything it took to stop Rupert's papers from reaching the outside world. But Rupert had a plan of attack, and he also had the tacit backing of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. She was a cheerleader for Rupert, standing up in Parliament to deride the strikes as, quote, socialism in action. She sat for an interview in the Times, condemning the strikers in Rupert's own paper, printed at Wapping. And it wasn't just rhetoric. She made sure Rupert had full police support. The police powers were invoked days ahead of the strike.
3: Yes, that's right. I mean, before the strike had even been announced, police barriers were being put up around the Times newspapers. You know, the tension was mounting.
0: Margaret Thatcher's anti-union laws, which allowed the police to crush the miners' strikes a year earlier, were now used to protect Rupert's business. So when the strikes kicked off, hordes of police on horseback and in riot gear descended on whopping. They stayed there for a year. The cost of police protection alone ran into millions of pounds. The unassuming suburb in London became a war zone. And so did you join the picket line? Did you help organise that?
3: Of course, yes. There was one particular night where we were trying to survey the scene, do a bit of a recce to see where the police were and what other things we could do to block the roads. Uh, We came face to face with a, a whole bunch of mounted police.
0: The police started moving towards them.
3: We were gripping each other as tight as we could, but none of us were prepared to move. The back of my neck and uh, shoulders of my jacket were absolutely smothered with police horse saliva. I can now tell you in intimate detail the inside of a police horse nostril.
0: Anne made sure I understood she'd got off lightly. One person actually died, a local teenager who was run over by a lorry. Inside, it was Fortress Wapping, but Rupert was determined to keep a business as usual attitude.
1: We were under siege with barbed wire fences to protect us and uh, special buses hired to
0: drive through the picket lines and so on. Did you feel that you were trained the printers uh, or the workers on the picket line? How did you feel about crossing a picket line to go to work at Wapping?
1: Uh, well, uh, crossing the picket lines was not for most journalists. I mean, one or two. It was bad, it was sad. As I went past in my car, uh, the picket lines, I saw plenty of people on those picket lines I knew well, had worked with many years down the line. They included people like my secretary, for goodness sake, for whom I had a lot of time. It, it was just simply a case of doing what we thought was the right thing in terms of the long term.
0: It became a war of attrition. The unions were running out of money, and they could not afford to strike indefinitely. In February 1987, 13 months after the whopping dispute began, the unions admitted defeat. They did grind the strikers down in the end, didn't they?
3: Uh, yes, it, it has to be said that some people had already left the dispute, but it, it wasn't running out of steam in the way that was alleged at, at the time. A h- huge numbers of people were still involved. Stopping the dispute caused unbelievable acrimony uh, amongst the members. Most of the members who were involved in the dispute did not want the dispute to end, etc., etc. So it was a, a tragic, acrimonious end. And after the dispute, none of the workers were reinstated and no trade union has been recognised since.
0: The Whopping dispute is Rupert's most ruthless victory. He would not compromise on rehiring those 5,500 workers and he never again recognised unions at his UK operations. Rupert won at Whopping, but he couldn't have done it without the support of the police and Margaret Thatcher's anti-union laws. The police defended Wapping like they were Rupert's private army. Was Wapping, the success of Wapping, evidence of a kind of tacit deal between Rupert Murdoch and Margaret Thatcher in your mind?
1: I think the coalition of interest between Margaret Thatcher and Rupert Murdoch over Wapping is really important. She cemented the enduring friendship with Murdoch. She would guarantee that thereafter, he would be hugely supportive, as his papers were in the following years. But for Rupert, this was a business transformation. Unlike all the other proprietors who had to reach deals with their unions and go halfway, he had literally eliminated trade union strength altogether. And that enabled him to make what I've often called super profits and it was the basis on which he was able to expand elsewhere in the the United States. It really was the case that although we tend to demonise Rupert for what he did, it was clear that he led the way and other proprietors followed him.
0: Um, These days Anne has become an archivist of the dispute. She looks after a collection at the Marx Memorial Library in London and she offered to show me around this time capsule of whopping.
3: Right, just to set the scene, this is my one of my favourite posters from the dispute.
0: Anne holds up the poster. It's a picture of Rupert Murdoch looking straight into the camera with one of his newspapers unfolded in front of him.
3: Murdoch is holding up a copy of The Times. The caption underneath is, The Truth... He couldn't give a forex, if you care, don't buy Murdoch's papers, The Sun, News of the World, Times and Sunday Times. We pinched the slogan of the forex lager. It's a, a swear word that people, nice people don't use. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs>
0: Anne told me that the workers came out of the dispute blacklisted, never working in print again. People lost their trades, their livelihoods, even their homes. That kind of devastation in a single community takes an enormous toll and it's clear to this day Anne still feels the effects of what happened in those 13 months. She sees the dispute as a warning to the rest of the world. What happens when moguls like Rupert act unchecked?
3: To me, it's the society and the leadership of society that allows creatures like that to dominate that needs to be changed. Um, so yes, he, although he's personally responsible as the leader of the company, the owner of the company, then the people who were influenced by him, uh, whether it was Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair or whoever they are the ones who are responsible as well for how workers were treated then and are being treated now.
0: Rupert had conquered Fleet Street. The battle for Wapping transformed the economics of the newspaper industry. The Sun became the most profitable newspaper in the world. Rupert was making money hand over fist
2: Murdoch's reward for leading the charge off Fleet Street is establishment admiration at last. Do you think you deserve that dukedom that one local writer suggested you did? Oh sure. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think you deserve it?
0: That wouldn't interest me. The super profits from Wapping funded Rupert's global expansion. The boy publisher from Adelaide was ready to push further into television, and into America.
2: Mahler's music
3: embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth... With the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed
2: opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au.
0: Next episode, Rupert's power and influence reach an all-time high. He'll launch his most singular creation, Fox News, but his unrelenting drive is beginning to take a toll. Especially on his family.
1: She wanted him to slow down. She wanted to have a more normal life. She didn't want this pressure on the children, this dynastic pressure. She would have seen them being played off against each other.
0: Subscribe to Rupert, the Last Mogul, for new episodes every Wednesday. Rupert, the last mogul, is hosted by me, Paddy Manning. Our supervising producer is Shane Anderson. Mixing, compositions and additional production by Zoltan Fetcho. Our executive producer is Sarah McVee. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. This podcast is a production by 7am and Schwartz Media. Thanks for listening.